You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and we have an especially fun show this week for Halloween because I am here with Jess Zafaris, who is the author of the new book, Words from Hell, all about scary, naughty, bad words, which is kind of funny because her past book was a, a lovely book for children. So one from one end of the spectrum to the other. Jess is the creator of the blog uselessetymology.com. She has a very popular TikTok account about etymology. We briefly did a TikTok game show together, and um, she is also my new contact at Reagan Community. Communications that we're working together on the advanced AP style webinar that I have coming out next week. So can't wait to talk about these horrible words. Welcome, Jess. Thank you so much. I am so excited to be here. And it's funny that you bring up the my my first book, uh, Once Upon a Word, because until Halloween of this year, I will be a children's book author. And then on Halloween, when the book releases, I will instantaneously no longer be a children's book author by any means. <laughs> and I guess before we get started, I am curious, what possessed you to write this book? <laughs> well, a, a bunch of ghouls and ghosts for one, but also just generally a love and curiosity of words. It's always been um, one of my favorite things to do. And I, you know, I found while I was writing Once Upon a Word, the children's book, uh, that there were many words I couldn't include, some of which we will talk about today because they were just too dark. Like I wanted to, I wanted to address a, a range of of animals, and I wanted to arrange spook or address spooky words, but um, I, I couldn't include them. And my editors on on the children's book told me to eliminate them from the manuscript. So I started saving them in a document. And I also found that um, I, have a, I have a fairly large TikTok audience um, who listens to me talk about word origins. And I found that those folks often were the most excited to learn about words that were just a little bit naughty or had some dirty secrets in their past. So that's a good chunk of the book. But of course, I also have a chapter on horrifying and terrifying subjects, which um, may be a little too too dark for kids, but but I think we'll keep it PG at the very least today. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. If you're a parent listening with your child in the car, we're going to keep it as safe as we can for you. One of the first things that I thought was interesting that you addressed is the difference between terror and horror. Like Those are two different things once you start thinking about it. Absolutely. Well, you know, we have associations today. Like if you feel terror, you are, you are completely frozen in terror. Um, whereas if you are horrified, odds are you might be, um, 
you might be watching a scary movie or you might be alarmed by something uh, your your friend does. But the word horror is derived from that hair-raising feeling of fright you get when you're thoroughly creeped out. Uh, its original Latin source means to shudder or to bristle with fear, just like the hairs on the back of your neck, which I think is very cool. Um, in Latin, it was also associated with like the kind of fear you hear in uh, biblical contexts, like the fear of God. Um it was a veneration and awe for the gods. Um, and then in English, its meaning varied quite a bit. In the in the 14th century, it was more associated with disgust, which is why when you say you're like horrified at something, it might be something that's a little disgusting. Um, and of course, there are different types of horror we have in the genre today. There's body horror, which leans more toward that disgusting edge. And then there's um, more like ghostly horror, which is a little more hair raising. So we have that association throughout history as well. Um, but either way, it's that shuddering feeling. Um, the earliest horror stories date back to ancient times, um, including ancient Greece and Rome. There was in particular, there was one account from Pliny the Elder who told a story about a fellow philosopher and educator who purchased a house that was haunted by a ghost and had to locate the bones of the deceased in order to put him to rest. And then terror is not actually directly related to horror, despite them sounding a little bit alike. Um, but it is of the same ilk. It's more about trembling or filling with fear. So instead of hair raising, you have trembling. Um, so if you're horrified, you're shuddering and bristling. And if you're terrified, you're trembling and overwhelmed. Um, it's a subtle distinction, but it's one that remains in the difference between words like terrified, which always implies fear, and horrified, which can also mean scandalized. Yeah. And people have asked me this quite a bit. Like, how did we get from terror to something being terrific, being good? Good question. Um, so something terrific is great, right? In the 1600s, um, something, and before that, something terrific did inspire terror. Terror is this big, all-encompassing, highly distracting feeling. But in the 1800s, it was extended to encompass anything or any experience that had a huge or distracting impact on you, like a terrific headache. And then by the late 1800s, it first appeared as a word for a person or as an experience that had a massive but positive positive impact on you. And that's kind of a, you see a lot of like wordplay and twisting of meaning around the Victorian era when this happened. Oh, cool. Yeah. I love how words do that. Just, just love mm -hmm. it. Um, so like um, smashing or, or other words like that um, in the Victorian era took on sort of a positive connotation despite previously being negative. Right, right. And egregious was good and then it was bad. Like word and, right. and yeah, words they, they switch good and bad more often than you'd think. Um, they do. Yeah. Um now how about um Jack-o-lantern? That's another great Halloween one. Jack Jack was just a guy, right? <laughs> exactly. Um in the same way so the word guy comes from the name of Guy Fox and then turned into like a generic term for a dude. And Jack was the predecessor to Guy in the same way that we say Guy today. Jack was sort of the, um, the proto Guy. Um, <laughs> so a jack-o-lantern is literally a, a Jack of the lantern, a guy carrying a lantern. Um, in some regions of England, it was uh, also like a, a jack-o-lantern became the name of a um, will-o'-the-wisp 
which is a ghostly spirit or a light seen by travelers at night that lures them into the darkness. Um, and the overlap between Jack-o'-lantern and Will-o'-the-wisp is due to the idea that you might mistake this light for the lantern of the night watchman as you approach the town. Mm. Um, but of course, it's all the ghostly ruse that leads you to your doom. Um, mm. Funny enough, if you take it literally, Will-o'-the-wisp means pretty much the same thing as Jack-o'-lantern. Will was another generic man's name, and a wisp was a bundle of straw used as a torch. So a Will-o'-the-wisp was the wisp that the dude named Will was carrying, much in the same way that the lantern... Uh, Jack was carrying. Um, as for the carved pumpkin, though, uh, it was a common practice around around the festival of Samhain, which is a predecessor to Halloween um, in Ireland, uh, to carve faces into turnips and illuminate them with candles, either to represent supernatural spirits or to ward them off um, because they were fairly generic human faces and they functioned as lanterns. The Jacko the Lantern concept was applied to them. This is Jack is the little face in it. Um, and then the, ex the tradition extended to pumpkins in the Americas, where pumpkins were plentiful and colorful during the harvest season. Ah, so if um, you want to be especially authentic, you can carve turnips. Yes, exactly. Um, and honestly, any kind of gourd or root vegetable, I'm sure you could have a lot of fun with that. Um, there's also a little folktale about jack-o'-lantern, um, about the jack-o'-lantern. In addition to being um, a generic name for an old guy, you know, any old dude, um, Jack was also often used in stories as the name of a clever trickster protagonist. It became a bit of a trope. Um, and according to one particular story, Stin Stingy Jack was a drunkard and a particularly nasty fellow. And when I, one night Satan catches up with him uh, while he's bragging of his evil deeds and Satan tells him that he has... Uh, he's come for Jack so he can pay the price for his evil deeds. Um, Jack begs Satan to let him have one last night at the tavern before dra being dragged off to hell, and Satan complies. And then after a night of heavy drinking, Jack suggests again to Satan that he transform himself into a coin so he can pay off the tab, essentially. So <laughs> Satan does so, and he puts and Jack puts the coin, the Satan coin, in his pocket where he keeps a cross, which traps Satan in the coin. And he promises to release Satan if he gives Jack an additional 10 years of life. So, uh, of course, Satan has no choice, and he agrees. And then 10 years later, Satan comes calling while Jack is sitting under an apple tree. And uh, Jack, being wily as he is, begs him to enjoy one last apple. And Satan, being pretty stupid for an immortal king of hell, who apparently can't see through this ruse, climbs the tree to get the apple. Jack came prepared with more crosses. He places them around the base of the tree, trapping Satan again. And he makes Satan promise that he will never have to go to hell. Um, Which he Satan should have done the first time. <laughs> right. I don't know why he didn't think of that. But uh, he, Satan is furious and he's stuck. Um, and he is probably late for his daily rounds of torture lost souls so he agrees unfortunately for jack when he does eventually die his soul wasn't pure enough to make it to heaven though so he was sent back down to earth for all eternity satan came to mock poor jack who was all alone on a dark night with no light to find his way and satan tosses him a burning coal which he puts inside his carved turnip to make a lantern and some say he still roams the land to this day that's wild. I had never heard mm -hmm. that story before. Who knew uh, Satan was so easily manipulated? <laughs> There's a lot of things uh, going on in that story. <laughs> mm -hmm. Very much. Um, what's the the song about? Um, 
the golden fiddle. Oh, the devil that. went down to Georgia. Uh, oh, reminds right. me a little bit of that one. Yeah. <laughs> right. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new. Cause Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Remember the frustration of trying to memorize vocabulary and grammar rules? only to find you couldn't actually use the language in real life? Well, there's a better way to learn. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program with millions of users learning 25 different languages, and you can get it on your desktop or as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone immerses you in many ways with its intuitive process. It's really different. You pick up the language naturally first with words, then with phrases, and then with sentences. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Grammar Girl listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Is it rosettastone.com slash grammar. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash grammar today. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently. Acapella.edu. Well, <clears throat> moving on to some of the scary creatures, um, Stephen Colbert is famously afraid of bears. Bears have always been terrifying, I guess, to humans going way back because actually in one of my books, I use the word bear as an example of a euphemism. Um, to, why don't you explain like what, what, what's unusual about the word bear? You are correct. It is a euphemism. Um, in many Germanic languages, including English, the word for bear literally means the brown one or the brown thing. So different words, including the word bear, because a bear was essentially um, a taboo animal because as uh, an opponent of hunters, they were frightening. The root of the word bear is the same as that of the word uh, brown. So when it comes to bears, we straight up don't say their name. There is presumably in the past, another word for bears that means something else or, or is just unique to bears. But this, this word that we use now is, um, is, is sort of a, a way to talk around it by saying, you know, Harry Brown thing. Uh, we don't <laughs> invoke its name by actually speaking it. Meanwhile, words like the Greek arctos and the Latin orsus, which both mean bear, um, share a root that, that actually means bear. Those were, were actual words for bear rather than brown thing. That's scary. Um, it's amazing that we've lost the original word. They were so afraid of using the word that it's become lost. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And I also, in your book, you say that the um, Arctic and Antarctic are named yes. uh, related to the word bear. I didn't know that either. 
That's right. Arctic means of the bear and uh, Antarctic means opposite the bear due to where you can and where you can't see the constellation Ursa Major, the great bear. Um, It's also interesting, but not related that uh, polar bears are in the Arctic, but not in the Antarctic. It's more of a serendipitous coincidence because the people who use these words probably wouldn't have known whether there were or weren't polar bears in the Antarctic, for example. Right. The whole other side of the world. (laughs) Right. They hadn't been there. Um, Yeah. So, okay. So another, another scary creature is the Banshee. Uh, Let's talk about the Banshee. Yes. Uh, this one's really neat. Um, I, I love, um, we don't get a lot of Irish words that get carried over in, into English. There are some, but, but many, they do, many do not appear in English. Um, but this one was adopted directly from, um, Irish and it's a phonetic spelling of, uh, a phrase that means the female of the elves, which is very cool. It's, it, um, the, the banshee spirit has, has a lot of like varied folklore attached to her. Sometimes she is, um, she wasn't necessarily, uh, screaming as you often see in modern folklore. Sometimes she's more like a siren who's believed to foretell death with her eerie song. Hmm. Interesting. And I, and you said in the, you, in the, in the book, you have the Irish spelling of what banshee is the phonetic spelling of this Irish word. And speaking of like, terror. I am filled with terror. Every time I see an Irish word, I have to pronounce based just on the spelling. <laughs> yes. is that, they, is You'll never. see that I did not say that. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the she part in Irish is spelled S-I-D-H-E. Like I would never look at that and think she. <laughs> just, Irish mm-hmm. is just terrifying to me to have to pronounce. <laughs> Earlier, I mentioned the holiday Samhain, which is pronou- which is spelled S-A-M-H-A-I-N. Um, but I, and I had to, I've had to listen to the pronunciation of that several times to get it right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Irish is tough pronunciation wise. Mm. Um, next, another one is, um, chimera. So, you know, my, my, before I was grammar girl, I was a biologist. And so we, we actually did talk about chimeras and they weren't scary monsters. They were just two different kinds of cells fused together. So let's talk about the scary kind of chimera. <laughs> yes. So, uh, the cells get their name from the mythical beast from Greek mythology. Uh, she's got a lion's head, a goat's body, and a dragon's tail. She is female in this mythology, and her name literally means year-old she-goat, or um, she-goat who has lived one winter, which is a bit of a mouthful in English. Um, and according, we're going to bring up Pliny again, um, according to a citation from one of his um, bestiaries, she was associated with the fire-spewing gas vents found on Mount Camara, which was named after the myth of the, the beast um, in the uh, Mediterranean region of Lycia. And in um, in biology, as you've referenced, um, chimerism is when uh, one twin embryo is absorbed by the other, resulting in one child with cells or genes from both embryos, resulting in appearance variations like two-toned eyes or um, or two-toned skin. And this uh, terminology reflects the multi-species appearance of the chimera. Fascinating. Fascinating. Uh, we have one that was surprisingly new to me, uh, the Chupacabra. I, I had no idea that it, the na- that name was so new. 
Yeah, I I didn't either. I uh, I could have sworn that before 1995, people talked about chupacabras, but apparently not. Um, chupacabra literally means goat sucker after its <laughs> penchant for drinking the bloods of blood of livestock. It sounds much cooler in Spanish. Um, but uh, the the name of the beast is um, was coined in 1995 by Puerto Rican comedian Silverio Perez. Um, through and uh, however, I will say monsters like this and cryptids of this nature have appeared in folklore for a long time. So the idea of a a blood sucking livestock beast eating beast is not new, but the name itself apparently was coined in 1995. Huh? Do you know, was he making a joke about it when he named it? Do you know the context? You know, I actually don't have that in front of me right now. I've heard the story before, but I'm gonna I, I'll have to get back to you on that one. Episode two, maybe. <laughs> Okay, that's fine. So from going from a new one to a couple of very, very old ones, um, dragons are quite old. Dragons, yes, indeed. Um, you know, dragons today aren't always presented as malevolent beings or monsters, but they've certainly been the target of slayings in European folklore and throughout the years um, in many cultures, they're often, you know, considered things to conquer or metaphors for the challenges we face in life. But personally, I'm a big fan of dragons, so I, I am I am anti-slaying of dragons. <laughs> um <laughs> This uh, this word is is uh, Latin in origin, uh, or well, originally Greek, also Latin. Uh, Greek, uh, English got it from Latin. Um, dracon and draconum mean a huge serpent or dragon. In Greek, it also probably referred to a sea serpent specifically, um, which that kind of makes sense. A lot of sea creatures look dragon-like when they're cresting from the water and and perhaps the the actual creatures of the deep inspired sea monsters that led us to um contemporary images of dragons um either way uh it, according to um robert k barnhart who edits a number of uh etymology dictionaries the literal sense of the greek word was the one with the deadly gaze which sort of um calls upon other greek monsters with murderous eyes like basilisks and gorgons mm-hmm. um and then in greek and latin mythology uh the term sometimes referred to any great serpent even one that wasn't um mythological like in um the iliad agamemnon wears a blue dragon motif on his sword belt but it's just as likely that the greek word in um the iliad was used there to refer to a snake oh. uh like a blue snake um dragons didn't necessarily have legs until the middle ages most dragons at the time had four legs and additional wings while two-legged dragons were called wyverns um wyvern comes from an old french uh and ultimately a latin word the the old french means snake um and also was a word for a javelin um which i think comes from the snake concept it's a weapon shaped like a snake um and then it's ultimately from the same latin source as the word viper Wyverns have more distinctive characteristics, um, like they'll have an arrow-shaped tail tip. You can see this in um, heraldry from the Middle mm. Ages. Um, and then uh, some some people, some nerds, including myself, 
to some degree, will argue that a dragon with two wings and two legs, like the ones you see in Game of Thrones, are technically wyverns. I'm not I'm not prescriptive on this front. I think they also qualify as dragons. But uh, I don't know where you stand on this. I, I don't have a strong opinion on the dragon wyvern um, debate. <laughs> oh, uh, my, my husband probably does. <laughs> not, not a fierce point of contention. Um, no. And aren't, aren't the very oldest dragons um, from China? That is correct. Um, and I, I love Chinese dragons. They are beautiful the way they're, they appear in artwork. They have those long bodies and more mammalian faces. Um, they're the oldest in recorded mythology appearing all the way back to the 16th century BCE. Um, the Mandarin name for dragon, which I'm not going to pronounce it with the right level of inflection because, um, you know, the different tonalities influence meaning, meaning yeah. in Chinese, but it essentially looks like the word long when you transliterate it into English. Um, it's thought to be uh, onomatopoetic. So it echoes, uh, it's meant to echo the sound of thunder, which would be the, maybe echo their roar, the sound they make. Um, and these wingless flying dragons were also sometimes uh, called uh, Tianlong, meaning heavenly dragon or celestial dragon. Um, we also see dragon-like creatures appearing in English or sorry, in Indian religious stories. Uh, we see dragon-like creatures also appearing in Indian religious stories, notably the three-headed headed Vedic serpent Viritra, which, um, excuse my pronunciation, um, <laughs> whose name means the enveloper and who is the personification of drought. Nice. Yeah, you're talking about um, Chinese being a tonal language reminded me of a completely fascinating but also completely unrelated tidbit. <laughs> that um, Studies have shown that Chinese people are more likely to have perfect pitch. So it's a language that it very much depends on the tone of the word, like whether you go up at the end or down at the end. And just being exposed to that kind of language at a young age, researchers think, makes people more likely to have um, perfect pitch. So that's much really interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. So they think that we all have this ability and, and that people who don't speak those kind of languages sort of lose it or it's developed and people who are exposed to that at a really young age. <laughs> I wonder if you were to uh, learn to speak Chinese or Mandarin, if you could, if you perhaps would improve your sense of pitch. I don't know. Practice. I haven't seen studies on that. I don't know if it's something you have to do when you're um, you know, very, very young or if you can develop it older. Yeah. Fascinating. That's very cool. I know like little kids are such sponges when it comes to like language and, and music in particular. So yeah. it would make sense that it becomes easier if you are exposed at that age. Yeah. So another like super, super old scary beast is um, the werewolf. Yes. Okay. I love this one. Um, it's one of my, one of my favorite things to talk about actually. Um, I, uh, it, because it also has some like funny gender interesting elements to it, or at least I tend to extrapolate them. Huh. Um, so the, the first element of werewolf is the um, old English word for man, like where means man here. So a werewolf is literally a man wolf. So it's a little yeah. funny when people, um, it, when people will use um, the term, the prefix were to create other animal hybrids, it still makes sense. So werebear is man bear. And uh, you'll see those in like Dungeons and Dragons and things mm. like that. Um, so uh, werewolf lore is, is very ancient. Um, it, it appears in Proto-Indo-European mythology between 
4,500 and 2,500 BCE, uh, lycanthropy, the state of being able to turn into a wolf uh, or wolf hybridization, um, has appeared in almost every culture around the world with any proximity to wolves. Um, but many werewolf legends in the Western world came from Germanic pa- pagan lore. Um, the second part of the word, um, this, uh, I'm sorry, the second part of the French word for werewolf, loop guru, is even Germanic in origin, which is um, not not super unusual for French words, but since um, French had so much uh, Latin influence, you don't always necessarily see it in, in modern words. Um, incidentally, the word loop guru, the, the French term is redundant. It means wolf, man, wolf, because loop is from the Latin word wolf and guru breaks down into the Germanic elements meaning man, wolf. So it's hmm. wolf, man, wolf. Um, <laughs> And then the man element of guru is cognate with the where part of werewolf. So we have a lot of cross-pollinization here. Um, and uh, the man element that we see there is in the, isn't in the like non-gendered human race sense of man, but it literally means male person. Like a werewolf is quite literally a, a man, a human male person who, or a person who identifies as, as a man. Um, and uh and the word wolf which which in my opinion means that i that like theoretically we would have an alternative for a woman who is a werewolf in which case you would use the old english word for woman which was weef w i f the um predecessor to the word wife which at the time just meant woman um so a a weef wolf would be the word for a female werewolf in that case I- I completely expect one of my listeners to now use that in a novel. So <laughs> Can't means, wait to see it. Yeah. Let just know if you do that. <laughs> yes. I, I want to hear about it. Tag me. <laughs> <laughs> so and another one that surprised me is, um, so demons were not originally bad. That was surprising to me. Yes, that is true. Um, Demons were once gods. Uh, the original Greek source of the word demon wasn't a word for an evil creature at all, but it instead was a word for a deity, usually a lesser god, so not necessarily one that you would find on Olympus, um, but one that influences some other aspect of life. Um, and even in Latin, the word demon simply meant spirit and not necessarily an evil one. Um, it became associated with malignant spirits because the Greek word was eventually used in translations of Christian texts to describe the gods of non-Christians and heathen idols and unclean spirits. So we have Christianity messing with this word and making it more negative. Um, and then by the time the word arrived in English in the 12th century, it was associated completely with evil spirits and devils. And then before that in English, uh, a demon, which like the concept existed, um, but the word for it in English was Helknicht or literally hell knight. Mm-hmm. So quite mm-hmm. literally a word from hell. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. You know, a lot of these have come from interactions between humans and scary real life animals that they lived mm-hmm. in close proximity to, or, um, you know, the idea of spirits. But um, the next two we're going to talk about come from uh, fiction. Like we were talking about National Novel Writing Month, a couple of um, novels. We have like Frankenstein, um, you know, is a, a scary beast we think of on Halloween that, um Mary Shelley wrote about was it was um, Frankenstein inspired by you know any Greek or Roman mythology or anything like that or was it purely an invention of Mary Shelley's mind? 
Well, a little bit of both. We've got we've got some blending here. Um, there's this fantastic story about how Shelley came up with the story for Frankenstein and even the name Frankenstein um, when she and her husband and wordsmith, uh, uh, her fellow wordsmith, uh, Percy, were visiting poet and politician Lord Byron. Uh, they were hanging out. They were, you know, probably having some fun together at his uh, beautiful estate. And they held this competition to see who could come up with the best horror story. And uh, Mary claimed to have had a vision about the monster and the name that very night. Um, of course, the Frankenstein is the name of the the doctor who created, or not the doctor, the um, scientist who created uh, the monster. Um, but it's often associated with the monster due to the fact that it's one of the first uh monster stories or or horror pieces of horror fiction that's widely recognized there were some before that yeah one tidbit in your book that i I did not know that that the monster's name the monster actually had a name it was its name was adam Adam. Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's right yeah um if you're an english major um or one of your english major friends has pedantically explained to you um at a party victor frankenstein is the creator not the monster victor considered naming the creature Adam after the Adam in Genesis because um in the in the story it's a little more oblique the way uh the monster is formed it's not necessarily explicitly stated that he's sewed from various dead body parts it mentions that he um he pulls together sort of a, a sort of a uh an a facsimile of of a human from we don't know quite what it's a little more vague in the book than it is um, in the film adaptations, which is where we really got the idea of a, a thing that's sewed together from different pieces. Um, and Adam in the, in the book is also quite a bit smarter. Um, it's, it's a, it's quite sad actually, because when um, he creates Adam, when Victor creates Adam, he's so terrified by his own creations, creation that he changes his mind and just calls him demon monster and wretch which as it turns out really hurts his feelings (laughs) and creates problems for everyone because he runs away and goes on this journey of self-discovery um and then mary shelley also called the character adam in the book's epigraph so it's often accepted as the monster's actual name in the book, um, the process of creating him is a little bit ambiguous. It involves like chemistry and alchemy. And then one of the lines where we get the idea of the stitched together monster is that um, Victor writes that his raw materials came from the dissecting room and the slaughterhouse. So perhaps corpse parts involved oh. at the very least. Um, <laughs> so another another thing that may have influenced Mary, aside from just like a random dream where she thought of the name Frankenstein, could be that she had recently visited Frankenstein Castle with Percy, uh, which overlooks the city of Darmstadt in Germany. Um, they had just been there a few years earlier. Um, and in Frankenstein Castle, um, an alchemist named Johann Conrad Dippel had experimented with human bodies. So maybe the idea, whether she realized it or not at the time, had come from that experience. Not oh. sure whether it's repressed or whether she uh, was protecting um, her claim of originality. Um, not sure. But either way, it means, it literally means um, Franconian mountain or free stone in German. Ah, oh, fascinating. Cool. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you know, and Frankenstein, of course, made me think of Dracula, which is another, um, you know, scary novel um, written, you know, after Frankenstein. Frankenstein was written in the early 1800s. Dracula was written in the late 1800s. But um, you talked in your book about the vampire craze of 1720s. So, you know, if you think that, uh, you know, Twilight was a vampire craze, you know, people have been doing that for a long, long time. So let's talk about vampire. You know, when we're running out of time, we're just going to wrap up, but um, let's let's finish with vampires. That seems appropriate for Halloween. Absolutely. Um, So one of the mysterious thing, most mysterious things about vampires is we actually don't know the origin of their name. It's it's quite a mystery. Um, But we know a few things. Um, One was that uh, the English word was adopted from either French or German, probably due to German literature. They had a um, kind of a a hold on... um, the monster fiction of the time. We also um, know that the word was adopted into German from Serbian and that the Serbian word came from Hungarian. Um, Slavic languages have words for vampire that can be traced back to um, an old church Slavonic word, opiri. um, But what that means is unclear. Um, It could be from a word meaning witch. It could be from a Slovak word meaning to stick or thrust into someone or something. Um, It could also, it could uh, be connected to vampire lore as a as an expression of cultural anxieties around uh sticking and thrusting for example for the time um it first appeared in a 1734 uh anonymous manuscript called the travels of three english gentlemen from venice to hamburg uh the manuscript went unpublished until 1745 when it was compiled into the harleian miscellany which was edited by samuel johnson who also wrote one of the most influential dictionaries in the english language and he's also seen in that meme (laughs) exactly you know he's in that meme where he's squinting at the paper too um so the the manuscript quotes a passage from a German text that details what would come to shape English Gothic vampire fiction, including sleeping in graves and sucking blood and death by staking and burning. But um, one of the things that may have led to this manuscript was the vampire craze that you mentioned. Um, vampires became a fixture of German literature around uh, following the 1720s uh, when two suspected real vampires named Peter Blagojevich and Arnold Powell, I believe, were exhumed in Serbia Serbia under the Habsburg monarchy. And they were found, apparently they had been, they hadn't been decomposed and they had blood on their mouths. So whether this is true or not is unsure, but people definitely believed it was and and, uh, attributed some deaths to them around the time terrifying i'm sure mm-hmm. very spooky <laughs> well jess thank you so much for being here we're going to wrap up the podcast but for those of you who are interested we're going to continue the discussion and take it to youtube so there's going to be an extended version of this podcast on youtube the first time we've ever done that because there are so many more fascinating scary bad words to talk about we're going to talk about uh, brooding fell grave grim and and more so um but if you you know, are checking out now, I want to encourage you to get Jess's book, Words from Hell. It is just so much fun. So many more words we didn't talk about. And it's also gorgeous. I mean, I think it would make a fabulous gift too, because it's so beautiful. Um, Jess, thanks for being here. Tell, why don't you let people know where you want them to find you? 
Oh, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. I could talk about this all day. So I hope you'll continue watching over on YouTube. Um, in the meantime, you can also find me at Jess Zafaris, J-E-S-S-Z-A-F-A-R-R-I-S um, on TikTok in particular, but I'm also to be found on Twitter and Instagram under that name. I also have a blog called Useless Etymology, where you can learn more whimsical and interesting facts and not just those who are, that are naughty and nefarious. So um, check me out, connect with me. I always love connecting with fellow word nerds and would love to talk. Great. Thanks a bunch. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great.